Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, give us grace in this time as we open your word once more. Help our thoughts to be guided by you. We pray that you impart these things to our souls by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray for those who are unconverted here that they would turn to you even today that they would see in the perfection of your word their own lost state, that they would understand their desperation before you, that they would understand that apart from Christ there is no hope for them. But in Christ we receive all the riches of heaven in that, Father, you come to love us as even your own dear Son. I pray that you give me grace as I expound your word once more, and as I make application from Acts 12 yet again. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Oh, as promised last week, we're going to spend the entirety of our time in this sermon applying the text that we exegeted last week, and so we will begin again in this time by refocusing ourselves on the text, by rereading it. So looks to Acts chapter 12, starting in verse One, we're going to read all the way through the chapter, and then we are going to, from there, enumerate additional application into points. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread... When he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. When the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself, And they went out and went along 
one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter when Herod had searched for him and had not found him. He examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So straightway into points here, point number one is don't ever sanitize the wrath of God. Don't ever sanitize the wrath of God, either as it is expressed temporally or in terms of eternity. In our day, Big Eva, as they are called, Big Evangelicalism, modern American church, is comfortable instead of faithful. They are nice instead of kind, and so they trip all over themselves to round off the sharp edges of God's wrath and His judgment. These define themselves as attractional churches. That is their buzz term. They are here to give you, the consumer what you want, and that is why they look so unlike the church in Acts. And so attractional ought to be considered a pejorative in the way that they use it, but they mean it as a compliment, actually, unto themselves and those like them, as they see as a good thing, a virtue. Let me ask you, how is this for attractional? And we'll go back first to Acts one sixteen through 19. Brethren, says Peter, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And here is Luke's parenthesis, describing in graphic detail what actually occurred. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hekeldama, that is, field of blood. Or how's this for attractional? Acts twelve twenty-two through 23, which is, of course, 
right square in our current text, the people kept crying out the voice of a God, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, does it ever strike you, Christian, that hell is, while a reality, a truly incredible proposition? Or have you been in this faith so long that you've lost perspective? You hear about it all the time, and so, well, of course, yeah, God sends people into an eternal darkness where the worm never dies, uh, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and agony is all that they ever know. And this stretches on forever. Conscious eternal torment, sure. We all know this. We all understand this. This is one of those ideas we become a little too comfortable with. And we need to be reminded what all the fuss is about. And if this is true for you, just go and represent the biblical doctrine of hell to somebody outside of the faith and see how they respond to it. And if you do this, I think you will rediscover quickly the incredible nature of eternal damnation. But what takes this proposition from incredible to really and truly unbelievable, as in it cannot be believed, is the modern evangelical representation of God. Their whole pitch is that God really is that into you. And all that wrath stuff in the Bible is just you misunderstanding God and the various situations in which he exercised wrath. So in other words, you just don't get him. You're not understanding him. He didn't mean it that way. Well, let me ask you, is your prima facie take on the Herod situation that God has zero tolerance for idolatrous rebellion and therefore annihilated Herod the very moment that he received worship unto himself as though he were God? Because if that is your superficial understanding, I can report to you, you're not misunderstanding anything. It's exactly right. You see, if we simply represent God as Luke has represented him and as the prophets did before him and the apostles and, of course, Jesus, then hell will still be incredible, but it will not be unbelievable because it will be in keeping with God's character and actions more broadly. And hell being believable is a good thing because people like Theophilus need to believe that hell is real because without Christ... They're going to be cast into it. Now, I imagine that entering into the wrath of God post-death is pretty well always a confusing situation. I mean, here you are, one minute, and you're alive, and God isn't real, or maybe he's theoretically real, and then, bam, you're right in front of him. And you are beholding fury beyond your capacity to even process it. Sometimes we say, as a sort of throwaway statement, you know, my mind couldn't believe what my eyes were seeing. In this sort of a situation, that will be absolutely true. There won't be anything hyperbolic about it or overstated. But I should think that entering into eternal wrath is much, much more confusing when you only ever understood God to be a Papa Smurf in the sky type of figure. Because some skinny jeans, sweater vest wearing charlatan assured you that he was. Uh, he's not, though. Oh, now, all of this is well and fine for all of you who attend this church regularly because of all that this church's pulpit ministry has been accused of. In the time that this church has existed, it's never been accused of soft-pedaling anything. But then the question that I would have for you is what of your pulpit 
personally? Do you publicly support justification by faith only to privately and personally endorse the much more popular evangelical doctrine of justification by death? At this point, I want to give you a scenario, and I want you to really place yourself in this example. And through this, perhaps, we'll get to the truth. Say you have a loved one who dies, and this person died in their sin. They were a hater of God. And they're lying in that casket over there. And you have another loved one who is currently in their sin and rejects God. And they come to you because they know you're the religious one. And they ask, desperate, for some relief, desperate for some comfort, is so-and-so in a better place? What do you do? Well, you shouldn't be brutal, but you must not lie. You must tell the truth. And let me give you another example that doesn't pertain to eternity directly, but still very important. Say you have an unbelieving friend, and they are experiencing a series of unfortunate events in their life, things are happening kind of all at the same time as, as things sometimes can through certain seasons. A dog dies on the same day that they get evicted, which is the same day that their spouse or longtime partner dumps them, which is the same day that they lose their job, that sort of a thing. And they come to you and they say, do you think that this could be God? Do you think that perhaps the hand of God is against me? Well, in this situation, there is only one right answer, and it's I don't know. With Herod, we know that he got eaten by worms because of direct rebellion against God, because we have a chapter and verse reference. With them, we don't know. But what should absolutely never be said is, no, of course, this isn't a direct judgment from God because he doesn't operate that way. He does operate that way. And you, as a mere mortal, cannot know whether he is or isn't, but you do know that the sinner that you're talking to always and at all times deserves this temporal expression of wrath. They did enough before they even rolled out of bed this morning to deserve this because they awoke in a state of rebellion against the living God that is sufficient. Whatever else came next, that was enough. And let me remind you here of how Jesus answered a similar question. Wouldn't you know it? This also comes from Luke. It seems that this uh, aspect of addressing what we call theodicy is something that he engages in regularly. Obviously, it's important to him. Luke 13, 1 through 5, there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate. Well, obviously, this question is floating around in the air. That's why he's raising it. He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We must suppress the instinct to comfort those concerned with death or those who are suffering in this life with a comfort that is not ours to give. It is not for us to offer comfort ultimately, but to direct those in need of comfort to he who can truly comfort their souls. And we rob unbelievers of this when we say peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's a profound affront 
to God. It is what the Puritans called aborting a soul. Here they are at this moment, this fork in the road that is provoked by the observation of something that is the wrath of God or appears to be the wrath of God, and then you come in and you say, no, 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 it's okay, it's not okay. Let them feel the weight of that. The percentage of genuine believers who became so because of genuine terror at the thought of receiving eternal judgment is exceedingly high. Let this be the entrance for them into eternal life. And speaking of such people, you happen to be uh, in the hearing of one now. When I was a small child, this seemed like a good reason to come to Christ. And as I have gone on, and learned much more about hell than I ever knew then, it seems like a better and better reason every day. Kindest thing that you can do for an unbeliever is to leave them with their equivalent of Herod got eaten by worms because he rebelled against the Most High. And as we said last week, that was actually the last best thing that happened to him. And then you tell them to seek refuge and remedy in Christ. This is the nature of the comfort that we offer them. I often tell people who are in this sort of a state, I say, I am sympathetic to you because I'm of the same stock and substance as you apart from Christ. But my sympathies cannot save you. I, however, do have a sympathetic high priest and his sympathies do save. His name is Jesus. And it's him you need to seek sympathy from. But also understand that when we refuse to acknowledge the wrath of God, we rob God of his glory by denying or diminishing his victory over his enemies. Herod was called the king of Israel, but then he was conquered by the actual king of Israel. And no doubt some of the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon recognized this, or at least suspected it, given the extremely curious timing of his demise relative to him receiving worship like a god. But the point is that we as God's people celebrate God's victories over his enemies. That's absolutely what Luke was doing with Judas and now with Herod, and this has always been the case. Let me give you one of the more toned-down examples of this from the Psalms. Psalm 44, 4 through 8. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. We will trample them down through your name. Are you speaking metaphorically? No, no, he's speaking literally. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me in the context of war. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And then comes that oft-occurring cause for call for pause and rumination. Salah. Think on this. Consider this. Meditate on the reality that God comes as an avenger on behalf of His people and destroys those who meant to destroy them. When God publicly destroys one of his enemies. We as his people are never to apologize for it. We are never to excuse it away. We are never to say that it wasn't really him because he 
is like only sovereign over the good stuff. Or as though the good shepherd has only a staff but no rod. He has a staff to pull his sheep back and he has the rod with which to violently beat those who are trying to eat them. He has both. He uses both. And when he uses his rod against the people who've been eating his sheep, we celebrate because we're not getting eaten. This, of course, makes many Christians uncomfortable. And part of this is the effeminate age in which we live, to which I alluded in the beginning with the attractional church. But another part of it is a very legitimate concern that we cannot balance celebrating the destruction of God's enemies with, but by the grace of God, there go I. So first, let me say that we must always remember when we observe the destruction of sinners that we ought to be right next to them as they take their place in hell. It's a dangerous thing to forget the place of grace. Very dangerous. If you have, if you start to think that in substance you are better than them, apart from the work of Jesus, wow. Repentance is needed urgently for you. But the fact that balance is challenging in this area doesn't mean that you just get to forsake this aspect of God's character. God is preeminently holy, and that's why he judges sinners. And without the judgment of sinners being rightly attributed to him, his holiness is obscured, and this we cannot allow to happen. And this, of course, is the the message of Romans 9. Both grace and wrath are only understood by us as we observe the contrast between the two. So let's put this into a context that we can understand. RBG. When she died, I remember this conversation online between factions of Christians that formed. And there were those who rightly said, God has judged one of his great enemies, and she is in eternal torment on account of her unrighteous adjudications and the blood of untold children that, are, that is on her hands. But then there were the other Christians that said, or ostensibly Christian, we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't say that God has judged her because we're sinners too. Yes, we're sinners too, but God destroyed his enemy and God must be honored for that. But by the grace of God, there go I is true and essential. But so is, but by the grace of God, there you go. And that was, again, Christ's message in light of the tower's collapse. And let me say, as one final note on this, that we are where we are as a society because nobody actually believes that God will judge. That's how we got here. And again, they don't believe it in part because these attractional churches won't preach it. And attractional church members don't want to hear it. And so the world never hears it. They must hear it from us. Point number two, if corporate prayer isn't a priority to you, then neither is Christ. If corporate prayer isn't a priority to you, then neither is Christ. Verse five again, so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. I'll remind you again of the use of fervently. The uh, Greek word translated as such is ektenes, 
It is outside of the New Testament, a, a medical term. It refers to the straining of a muscle to its absolute limits. So this then is prayer that is strained to its absolute limits. This is pounding on heaven's gate. And not leaving until you have an answer. And it's entirely appropriate for them to be praying this way in light of recent circumstances. James, dead. Peter, imprisoned. About to be dead. Herod is raging against the church. And so they come together. Now, I I made an extreme statement as I enumerated point number two. I said, if corporate prayer isn't a priority to you, then neither is Christ. This is a severe statement, and it has profound implications, and we'll consider those a bit later. However, as extreme as it is, I do also maintain that it's true. But how am I getting to this conclusion? Well, I'm getting there from a number of different angles. But first, love for Christ always manifests in love for Christ's sheep. First John 2, 9 through 10. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And of course, we surely borne witness to this love in the testimonies of the saints in Acts in many tangible ways, uh, one of the greatest of which most recently was the church in Antioch providing for the material needs of the church in Jerusalem because of the famine. This is very real for them, all of this. And there are many more ways beyond that. Now let me remind you of what I have made known to you many times up until now. And that is that Acts is the practical outworking of the doctrines taught by Christ in the Gospels and expounded upon by his apostles in the epistles. You receive in those books explicit teaching and then you observe in this book how those explicit teachings are lived out. How they are obeyed in practical terms. Now why do I remind you of this? Because they love each other by praying with and for one another. Here is an overview of this study from the book of Acts. In Acts 1, they, emphasis upon the collective, pray for power to preach the gospel and the appointment of another apostle. And this carries into Acts chapter 2. At the end of Acts chapter 2, they, being now converted, were continually devoting themselves to corporate prayer. And by the way, if this were the only mention of their attitude to corporate prayer and their devotion to it, that would be enough because it is described as continual by Luke. You know already then that meeting together in the flesh to pray on a regular basis is definitional of the Christian faith as it is lived in community, and by the way, it is only lived in community. We aren't any of us isolationists. In Acts 4, they pray for boldness to face persecution, and here in Acts 12, they pray for the deliverance of Peter. In Acts 13, we'll begin with a corporate prayer for wisdom in ministry. In Acts 16, they collectively will pray for new churches that are being founded. In Acts 21, their prayer is for unity. But let's consider the epistles for a moment, which are being written even as the events of Acts are being lived out. We'll just pull a couple examples here. We could do much more. This, I think, will suffice. James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed in the context of the church gathered. 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, You, the church, also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many, again, as they are gathered. And, of course, beyond this, I could show you countless examples of corporate prayer in the Old Testament. 
Book of Nehemiah comes to mind first for me. There are several, and many others, though, as well. I might also point out that their practice of prayer bled into Christianity, as Peter in Acts 3 was still going to the temple at one of the regular hours of prayer. But perhaps I ought to give you a glimpse into the world beyond this one. Revelation 8, 1 through 5. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God. The seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. But as Calvinists, you believe that prayer isn't effective because God is sovereign. No, I believe that prayer is only effective because God is sovereign. God has His purposes and His decrees from eternity past, and they shall all come to pass. But what cannot be denied is that in the present and immediate future and beyond, prayer is one of the most potent means of Him bringing His decrees to pass. This is rudimentary. It's fundamental to an understanding of the doctrines of grace. The God who establishes the ends also establishes the means. This is one of the primary means. And I have articulated it as follows in the past. I have explained it as uh, condensation from the ocean being collected into the clouds and then the winds moving that cloud over to a spot on dry land, and then God making it rain. It works this way with prayer. God collects the prayers of His people, and then He uses those to enact His will in creation and salvation, which is not to say that He is bound by us. It is rather just to acknowledge that in this way He uses us. And this is also fundamental to authentic spiritual life. You ever watched an infant spurred to speak or something approximating speech by another infant when they're in the room together. And you would think that they were having a conversation with each other if you did not know that they don't actually uh, have the capacity to speak intelligible words. Who taught the infant to do that? To respond to the influence of another's voice and to seek to add their voice to this attempted conversation? God did. And who taught the saints in Acts 12 to gather their voices together to intercede in love for their brother? The Holy Spirit of God did. There are things one must be taught about the Christian life and must be stressed and stressed again and stressed again. This is as intuitive as it gets. In Acts 1, God gathered the saints to pray in order to gather more saints through conversion. And in Acts 12, he gathers them to save Peter through their prayers. For them to not gather to intercede for Peter would quite simply have been antichrist. Antichrist. Christians love each other. And love can do no other than to pray for one another. Leave Peter unprayed for? Among spirit indwelt believers, unthinkable and impossible. 
situation with Peter was far too dire for righteous men and women to not come together to offer their fervent prayers that avail much to the benefit of this man. But now let's speak of our circumstances. Are we fearful of the death of the saint that has been imprisoned? We're going to get there, but not at the present moment, no. No, we are concerned with an end much worse than that. If I may be transparent, and if I may also use you, I pray your, your pardon for doing what I'm about to do. I am not convinced of the salvation of my children. They have all confessed to it. I am not convinced of it. And so I bear that burden on my soul, and I pray for them often. You have adult children who are unconverted and grandchildren. Same is true of you. You have siblings who are unconverted. You as well. You too. You have children and grandchildren that are unconverted. You as well. You as well. You as well. You. You. All of us. So to you who are able to be here for prayer meeting but simply choose not to come, I must ask, in light of what is at risk, in light of the love that you know all of us have for the lost in our own families, in our own immediate context, are you a Christian? If you are able to forsake that fundamental need in others who are in fellowship with you, if that means little enough to you that you can't even show up when you can, when you're able, are you a believer at all? Do you have the love of God in you? And if the answer is yes, is it an uncertain yes or, it is, or is it a certain yes? Because if it's a certain yes, I would ask you another question, which is why are you so certain? Based upon the testimony of the scriptures that you hold in your hand, if you don't love each other as Christians enough to meet with other Christians to intercede before God, even as their damned loved ones edge even closer to eternal destruction, and you don't care enough to show up to intercede for your own, why would you be certain? I give enough answers. Here I am simply content to ask the question, but I must ask it. Because I am your pastor and I do pray for you and with you who don't come to pray for each other, I am frankly and honestly concerned for the state of your immortal souls because of the implications of that. It is one thing to go to a church like so many in our day that have utterly forsaken midweek prayer meetings and therefore not go to one. Obviously there isn't one. It's an entirely different thing to go to a church like this who makes that a staple of the ministry and not come. And as I have said numerous times, it is not Lord's Day. As critical as it is, it is not Lord's Day. If you have a work obligation, you're not sinning in not being here. Unless, of course, you can get out of that. Then you may be. Point number three. In the Christian life and community, sorrow is always commingled with joy, and we must all learn to accept this 
and learn how to live in light of it. Uh, let's start here by recapping recent events in the book of Acts. Stephen is murdered. Church is persecuted. Saul, the great persecutor, is converted. What a swing. Then the door is cracked open to the Gentiles ever so slightly, not to diminish what happened at the house of Cornelius. It's enough to let the church know that a paradigm is shifting, but it's not seismic yet, but praise be to God for this. Well, at least praise be to God for this eventually because the Jewish Christians didn't understand what had happened. And so in Acts 11, they took issue with him. This is no doubt understated. So Peter goes real high at the house of Cornelius after a great period of confusion that necessitated the whole vision with the sheet descending. Then he's brought low because he has this conflict with these people. Then they're made to understand and they all celebrate. But then comes the Antioch revival and the church is as high as it possibly can be. This is unbelievable. And all God's servants in heaven above or upon the earth below shake the foundations with celebration. And then John's brother James is executed by Herod. And Peter is arrested and slated for the same. And of course, this spiritual whiplash going back and forth still happens today. And I've seen this many times in this church. And you have too. Let me remind you of a situation that you are already aware of as a church, and I will use no names here, but I will make you aware of the timing of certain events that you may not be aware of. We as a congregation, uh, led by me, but also by Pastor Dan, and with one of these situations far more so led by him, we see two men with families converted. Circumstances of each were incredible. Circumstances of one in particular was unbelievable. But this takes years from beginning to end. Lots of ups and downs. The sanctification process is messy. The process of bringing them in. The process of, with one, I had a conversation that I would have gotten out of had I had any way to get out of it where I had to say, you are clearly not a Christian. As a matter of fact, the other one, I had the same thing. Just said much more strongly in that scenario. So we go through this whole thing, okay? And we are brought to the point where we're going to baptize both of them. And we have that day. And on the very same day that we baptize these men, one of the members that we all knew and loved and still know and love confesses to apostasy the same day. I am not raising this situation to cause you pain. I am raising it because, like it or not, it's an example of a dynamic that will occur many times more throughout the life of this church as it does in every faithful church. Church, let me ask you a question that is often not asked at all to the great detriment of congregations because most of them have a slap on a happy face response to this sort of thing. How do we live like this for the long haul? How do we remain faithful in light of this constant up and down without becoming manic or without becoming bitter and letting Satan steal our joy? First off, let me say that we do this with difficulty, with great difficulty. And that needs to be understood lest you struggle and think that the struggle is strange or shouldn't be. It should be. 
And the only way it won't be is if you can no longer feel your soul. And then you're in a desperate state indeed. But providing that we still can feel our souls, how do we cope with this? One answer to this great dilemma of the Christian life is just spiritual maturity. It just takes time. Trust the Lord. Continue to put one step in front of the other. At the beginning, when you're first saved, every whisper of a movement of God creates this incredible excitement in you, and that's born of something really good and really sweet. But as time goes on, you do learn to vet a little bit more. You do learn to be a little bit more discerning. There's a statement that somebody's making about their faith, consistent with what I read in the Word about what faith is in general. Vet it like Barnabas vetted the Antioch revival. There's nothing unfaithful about that. That's just wise. Okay? And as time goes on, most of the lows don't take you as low either because you've to see the Lord carry you through so many situations like this. You know that the pendulum that swings farther one way will swing back. And you trust that in time it will. And of course, you continue to rely on Christian community. And they will help see you through. But the remedy that I'd really like to emphasize to you now is the one that occurs in the text. Look again to verses 24 and 25. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, they had fulfilled this mission, but they had fulfilled this mission only to receive another, and we'll see that next week as we enter into the next chapter. Now, they, of course, were apostles big A, but we are all apostles little a or sent ones in a different capacity than they. We are, therefore, all on mission all the time as Christians. And understanding this is what prevents spiritual mania and whiplash. It's a bit like the way that depression affects far more single people than it does people with married, people who are married and have children, and to far greater extent. Now, when we were experiencing extreme hardships in business, I ground the enamel off my teeth. I created, and I've said this before, I created fissures in my teeth. When I went to the dentist, he commented on it. She'd wake me up in the middle of the night because I was grinding my teeth so loudly I had waken her up. It induced vomit at times. I had such anxiety. If I could have just sunk into my bed and stayed there, I would have. Why couldn't I? It wasn't because of some inerrant virtue in me. It's because I had little babies and a wife. And so it didn't matter how I felt. I had to get up. I had to do something. Christian life is very much that way. James was beloved, but God had many other spiritual children, as he still does, and they all need care. And Jesus still had many sheep, not of that fold, who needed to hear that clarion gospel call of the good shepherd through his saints. Let me ask you, outside of a religious context, in what other context is that word mission typically used? And the one that it was original to. What's that? Yes, sir. The military. In the context of war and soldiers. And in that setting, is this dynamic of the highest highs married with the lowest lows 
not common as well? Of course it is. You have an objective. You have to storm a certain place. You have to take over a certain territory. It's very important to you and to your movement, and you achieve your objective, but you've lost a friend along the way. It's a constant state of warfare. These two things, one in one hand, one in the other, sorrow and joy. When apostasy comes and persecution, these things will take you low. And they need to, to some extent. Because if they cease to, you have stopped feeling. But a big part of being cast down but not destroyed is understanding what this life is and the role that we play in it. Do you really believe in spiritual warfare? Do you really believe that you are invested in it? Moving from one mission to another for the duration of our born-again lives is the way that this works and the way that we keep perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace which sustains us. We could never do this without you, Lord. We thank you that these burdens are ultimately not ours to bear in the truest sense. We thank you that we may transfer them to the broad shoulders of our Lord Jesus where they rightly belong. We praise you for carrying us through. And we thank you that this life is fleeting with all its pains and all its hardships, and we will be forever with our God after it is through. And that will be shortly. We praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.